and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Forward Radio, where many of you hear the perks of being a book lover, is having a fourth birthday celebration pledge drive, which runs from March 27th through April 9th. On April 10th at 7 o'clock p.m., it will also be having a community virtual talent show. The winner of the talent show gets a $100 cash prize, which could buy you quite a few books. If you are interested in performing in or watching the talent show, please visit forwardradio.org for more information. Historically, the voices we've heard most in books and literature have been those of white men. And even though there's been a movement to include more varied voices, there are still stories we don't often hear. The Louisville Story Program, however, is a nonprofit organization focused on helping the stories that don't often get heard come to light. The first-person narrative stories are made into professionally published books, but the way these stories come to fruition vary. Sometimes, Louisville Story Program staff do intensive writing workshops with high school students in neighborhoods we don't hear from very often. The teens write their own stories under the guidance of individuals who help them focus and make their writing the best it can be. In other situations, Louisville Story Program staff listen and record the oral histories of community members, like horse racing professionals at Churchill Downs, and turn those into published works. This week, we talked to the Deputy Director of the Louisville Story Program, Joe Manning. He is a songwriter, musical performer, as well as an author whose collection of essays about his experience as a young man on a merchant freighter that traveled the globe is called Certain Relevant Passages and was published in 2017. Joe tells us the easiest and most important question an interviewer can ask to get a great answer, how his very young daughter has helped him listen to more audiobooks, why it's so important for underrepresented groups to be able to tell their own stories instead of having others tell it for them, and why two important words for the Louisville Story Program are community and communion. Our guest today is Deputy Director of Louisville Story Program, and he is going to tell us all about what that is. Joe Manning, we are so happy to have you today. I'm really glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about you and your reading life. So were you a big reader as a kid? I probably was an average reader when I was a kid. I remember sitting in my living room reading The Little Prince and my dad and my stepmom sitting nearby looking on with great approval at my ability to do so. That was one of my earliest reading memories. And yeah, we read a lot and I enjoyed reading as a little kid. And then uh, middle school and adolescence, I certainly got my nose into a lot of books. A freshman year in high school, uh, I took a elective literature class. Uh, it was a great books course. It was, um, it was taught by a fellow named Thomas Kolb, who was, you know, everybody has an English teacher that really set them off. And, and uh, Mr. Kolb's class was a big uh, marker in my, my life as a reader and a thinker as well. It was a good class. 
So you mentioned you have a two-year-old and and you do work with Louisville Story Program. Do you have much time now to read for fun? And, and if so, what types of books do you usually find yourself reading? Yes, this is a very good question. And I think readers out there with children, I hope, have experienced the same thing I have. Because it's been pretty rough, to be honest. Sylvia's two years old now, and my reading and my writing both have just really taken a nosedive in the past couple of years. We read with her all of the time, kind of constantly. It's it's amazing. And especially in COVID times, we're, we're fortunate enough to be able to work from home as we raise our kid at home. So just constant contact around the house and she wants to read all the time. So I've learned a lot about children's literature in the past <laughs> two years. Uh, I have some opinions about it. But in my own uh, reading life, past, I would say, four or five months, I've been able to carve out some time. That's That's been a real blessing because I've been missing it terribly. Yeah, yeah. Amy's kids are almost grown and, and mine are 11, 13, and 16. Mm. So it does improve, mm-hmm. although they still have the habit of I can be around all day. They ignore me until I put my <laughs> earbuds in to listen to my audiobook, And then suddenly uh-huh. I am the most wanted person ever, uh-huh. you know. Yes. So. Yeah, uh, audiobooks have been great too. Sylvia frequently has um, difficulty getting down for a nap, but if you put her in the car and drive around the block, she goes straight to sleep. So I've definitely listened to some audiobooks lately and just thrilled to be able to back into my reading life again. So I read a lot of nonfiction and some novels and poetry, pretty wide ranging interests. I, I read some, you know, history and philosophy. They're always above my pay grade and and still I persist. I I don't know why I keep doing that over the years. I know that you're a writer in your own right as well. So at what point did the writing and the reading come together and you wanted to write as well? Yeah, I remember some early experiences and maybe in middle school where there was just this urgency to synthesize the world that I lived in somehow like needed to make sense of the world and so I wrote some terrible poetry um, <laughs> who among us has not read. written terrible poetry yes. well, it's <laughs> the only way it's the only way to the, to the finish line so I think I, those early experiences with writing as a way to navigate the world have really stuck with me I don't think I took it seriously as a pursuit though until probably college as in so far as one can take it seriously as a pursuit i think a lot of people dream of being writers and don't know how to do that or where to go it's a very intimidating thing to want to do it's overwhelming but i was really fortunate to have the opportunity to write for a a local free weekly called the leo in my 20s and early 30s and to, to get a little bit of a paycheck to just sit down and uh, write out my thoughts, I wrote a, an opinion column, or I think more precisely, I thought of that column as bargain basement cultural criticism. And I did that for, gosh, well, I wrote 99 columns for the, for the Leo Weekly wow. over the course of maybe five years. And that's really where I honed my chops, I think, as a writer and where I learned that it's a pursuit that I really wanted to engage in uh, in a pretty serious way. It was a stroke of good fortune for me to be able to do that because, again, as is the case 
continuously and, and one that I try to impart to the folks who I work with at Louisville Story Program, especially the young authors. The writing process is just a way of navigating our own experiences and thoughts and sort of codifying them. And in some cases, there's no other or better way to do that than to sit down and just bang it out on the keyboard for a while. So I felt really fortunate to have that opportunity to write for the Leo all those years. In hindsight, <laughs> I do wish that some of those columns were not memorialized forever and eternity in, in the internet. Um, some of them are pretty sophomoric in tone and execution. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Louisville Story Program. So just the two-minute history of how it started and, and why uh-huh. it began. So the Louisville Story Program is a, a literary arts outreach nonprofit based here in Louisville. And our main objective, our mission is to reach out to folks in Louisville who we don't hear from often enough and provide the resources and tools and platforms and guidance necessary for those folks to write books about their lives and their communities in Louisville. And quote unquote, folks we don't hear from often enough is a is an intentionally broad umbrella that, that allows us to reach out to communities uh, across Louisville who have been historically underrepresented or for whom the possibility of sitting down and, and writing a book has not really been an opportunity they've been able to, to engage in. So we do this in a number of ways. We have youth programming, and that entails working with a small group of young authors for a really long time. And this is really the key to our work at Global Story Program. The depth of our engagement and then the expenditure of resources and time to facilitate excellent writing that authors are, are super enthusiastic about and proud about. And so our youth programming takes about two years. Our authorship in these books is from eight to 10 or 11 in most cases. And so that's a long time to work with a, you know, a really small cohort like that. And it's it's because we are so dedicated to really providing excellent one-on-one mentorship and editorial services and instruction to these authors that they're able to write fantastic books about their lives and communities. So those are workshop-based book writing projects. In addition to that, we also publish books that are written by non-youth authors. We, We think of these as our community book projects. For instance, in the case of a book we published a couple of years ago called Better Lucky Than Good, it's the first documentary book written by American racetrack professionals. So when you think of grown-ups who are working jobs and leading lives and raising families, the opportunity for them to sit down in a rigorous, long-lasting writing workshop is just not really possible for a lot of folks. So what we do is engage them in a series of oral history interviews to create something like what we think of as a collaborative ethnography. So, for instance, I would sit down with one of my friends on the backside over the course of years. I worked on that book for three years wow. uh, and conduct iterative and successive interviews, which are transcribed and combined. And then there's a another pretty resource intensive collaborative editing phase in which they receive one draft after another and are able to work with me to, to edit those transcripts into a first-person narrative that, again, they're super enthusiastic about, and they are telling the story that they want to tell to the world. And, and this is key, I think. Our main objective 
is to publish stories that people want to tell to the world because it is too frequently the case and very especially with groups who we don't hear from often enough it's too often the case that people tell stories for other people Mm -hmm. or at them or about them and our assessment is that we ought to be listening to people talk about their own experiences in their own words you know so I, I'm curious, did the organization develop and then the projects came along or was there like a, a project that led to the creation of the organization? So Christmas week in 2012, I was at a little bar and venue. I think I may have been performing, I can't remember, but there was a show there regardless. And I was outside speaking with a friend of mine named Darcy Thompson, um, who's the executive director of Global Story Program. And we were just shooting the breeze and... As it turns out, we had both been entertaining very similar ideas about projects we were wanting to mount around writing and writing workshops. And so I was describing to Darcy this impulse I had to gin up some kind of writing workshop for youth. I didn't quite know how or why, but I just had had it in my mind that I wanted to reach out to young folks in some capacity and and start a writing workshop. Darcy listened to me patiently for a while, and he said, you know, I've been thinking something very similar. Let's get together uh, soon and and talk about it. So what we came up with was this common impulse to reach out to folks who might not have the opportunity to engage in a writing workshop otherwise and um, see what types of stories they wanted to tell and really highlight individuals and communities in Louisville who we don't hear from often enough. Darcy comes from a very rich background as an educator. He worked for Teach for America for a long time. Uh, he was a teacher in the Mississippi Delta and then went on to to do work with their research team for a long time, I think like 15 years. He's a truly gifted thinker and educator, and he just has an immense heart and has the best interests of his students and communities in mind all the time. And I was really inspired by the ways that he thought about education and the power of the writing workshop and the power of the writing process. So through those early meetings, we decided to try and figure out what we could pull together. And we had one stroke of good luck after another in the early phases. And we were able to come up with a little bit of grant funding to run a pilot project and found a willing party uh, in Principal Keith Look at the Academy uh, at Shawnee in West Louisville. So we were able to, to conduct some early writing workshops in 2013 with a group of 10 authors from Shawnee. And we did those in the summertime. And again, it's, it's a testament to our collective sense of, of goodwill, I guess, that we could walk into a school Some English teachers rounded up some students who they thought might be interested in a book writing project that had no prior standing. Nobody knew what we were getting into or what we anticipated, what we were hoping to pull off. I mean, we had ideas about publishing a really good-looking professional book that anthologized first-person narratives written by young folks, but we didn't have anything to show them at the time. Mm -hmm. We were just walked into a library and started flapping our gums. (laughs) telling these authors the types of things we wanted to do, which were to give them a lot of resources to tell their stories, a lot of editorial support, and importantly, promising them that the community really wanted to hear from them, really needed to hear from them. 
in ways that they had not heard from folks in their community before. And when I say their community, I both mean, you know, folks from Portland and Shawnee neighborhoods and West Louisville, and also from young folks, generally speaking. I mean, youth are their own class of underrepresented people in our culture. It's so frequently the case that young folks are not really listened to in the ways that they deserve to be and not recognized to be living vigorous and really extraordinary and colorful lives that they can talk about. One's reminded of the David Bowie lyric, I guess. They're quite aware of what they're going through, if only we would ask them to talk about it. So we did some workshops in the summer, starting out with the elements of craft, really nuts and bolts stuff, how to write creatively about one's experience and use a lot of sensory detail, starting with just writing prompts five minutes at a time and then workshopping the ideas that people were having. Once Shawnee said, okay, come in, we want you to do this program, did you tell the students, here's how much time you should expect to put into this? Or or did you have any parameters like that? We set the workshop up to be in the summer. We did two workshops a week for eight weeks, I think. And these would have been probably 90-minute workshops. And again, how do you get uh, young folks to show up in the summertime to a workshop out of school? (laughs) Well, and I should have said this before, in our youth programming, you know, the authors are paid in advance on their royalties for participating. And this is yet another way that we establish a collaborative partnership that honors the work of writing a book, which is very difficult. And it's a very difficult thing to do. And we, we know that the authors should be paid for their work. So I think since 2014, our LSP participants have earned, I think, over $40,000 in advances on their royalties. Oh, wow. um, so we take that pretty seriously. And, you know, interestingly, especially in that first project, we told them they were going to get paid for their participation. And it didn't seem to be that big of a motivator for them, which surprised us and also was really encouraging. And once we got into the workshops, we recognized a a realization that the authors were having that we we certainly were hoping for, which was that this was something that was going to be revelatory for them and a process of self-realization that was really important to them. So those authors continued to meet with LSP staff through the school year and essentially doing the revision and editing, which is, again, that's really at the, the foundation or at the core of how we achieve the type of excellence we're shooting for. It's extremely rigorous and it takes forever and it, it's not easy. It's, it can be a real drag for uh, young authors who are accustomed to drafting something for a class, maybe looking at it once or twice before they turn it in and then it's done and then never think about it again. Right. So for a, a 15, 16, 17 year old to write 5,000 words that they have nitpicked line by line six or seven times is just unheard of, but it works. So the book was a huge success. We sold tons of copies and the authors really engaged in the, the pilot for sort of what would become the sort of foundation for our work following that. And we, we talked to them and keep up with them and they have related to us that it was a really transformative experience, which is of course what, what we're shooting for. Mm. 
Well, with that project, what did you learn about what worked and what didn't work in terms of working with the students and bringing their stories to life? It was a great, great group and a great book. When we do youth projects, and we've done four at this point, I guess what we learned in that one and what we've carried into the other projects is to focus heavily on the elements of craft at the beginning and to be patient in that process, especially when you're working with a publishing deadline and you have 18 months or two years at the end of which a really beautiful, good-looking book has to be on the table. I find it difficult not to feel like a great sense of urgency, but you just can't rush the first part in which a lot of things have to happen. You have to generate a sense of community and safety and compatibility in the workshop and between the editor and the authors that's irreplaceable. I mean, it's it's the foundation of the work. And you have to set up an environment in which people feel comfortable and safe talking about their lives on the page and in the cohort in a way that will be productive down the line. And it's no, no small task. And it has to be fun, and it is fun. So we work on the elements of craft and writing prompts, just getting them comfortable with the primary element in my uh, approach to, to running a workshop, which is to get rid of your editor. All of the writing we do starts with what I call incautious writing. Sit down, take a prompt or some theme that you want to write on and just blaze through it. Write as fast as you can and as much as you can for five minutes or 10 minutes and then stop. In this process, if you can get away from your internal editor, you will shake things loose out of your mind that you just did not even know were there. Things really bubble to the top of the surface. And that's where I think the authors find a lot of the material. Frequently, they'll come in to the workshop thinking that they have an idea for what they'd like to work on. And is very frequently the case that a few months later, they have discovered they have other things they, they want to write about. And it's because of this process of incautious writing that things get shaken loose. So we do that for the first half of the program. And then there's this really delicate moment when you have to shift gears and take the material they've generated and go through it with them and start identifying through lines and threads that exist and start sort of probing them about what stories are rising to the top. And at some point you'll come up with a sort of clear concept for a chapter, for a first person narrative. And then you work from there. So it goes from the foundational and the very broad to this extremely specific. And at that point, they stop really workshopping with the cohort and start working very closely with the editor one day after another, just pushing the ball down the field until they have really wrapped up a cohesive uh, narrative. To answer your question, the first project, we were unfolding our wings and figuring out what could work. And, and that seems to be a pretty good way to do the youth programming. So when you start with your group of kids, it's each book sort of have a theme or it's whatever they want to write about in their first person? That's a great question. Almost never have we started with a theme in mind, we being Darcy and I, which, you know, we we wouldn't say like, hey, guys, welcome to day one. We're going to write a book about. (laughs) Right. But have we had ideas like maybe this group will end up writing about X, Y and Z? 
it generally doesn't shake out that way. So it, the writing prompts could be anything. And again, if you give someone a writing prompt and you tell them it very honestly, you say, it really doesn't matter what you do for the next five or 10 minutes, as long as you keep your pencil moving. Mm -hmm. It's what I tell them all the time. The way that you succeed in the next 10 minutes is to not stop writing. You will have succeeded. And if they believe that and can engage in that, all <laughs> kinds of stuff will come out of their pencil that frequently is nothing like what they started writing, but they will have dusted off some ideas that are worth revisiting later. So the initial part of the workshop is, I, I always use a metaphor of like, how does a sculptor end up with a fantastic piece of art? Well, first somebody has to go to the limestone quarry and dig up a gigantic piece of limestone, and then they have to put it on a truck and take it back to the workshop. And then you start knocking off giant flakes of limestone before you even start to see a shape. So we're really excavating giant pieces of limestone at the beginning of the workshop and then move uh, ever closer to the final sculpture. So with some of the projects with your older writers, those are a little bit different. When you were describing it in the beginning, it reminded me a little bit of StoryCorps. It's a podcast, but it's also, I think, an NPR show. People will tell their stories and they keep them, I think, in the National mm -hmm. Library of Congress. So right. part of it sounds a little bit like that, except for then you're putting it in book form. Right. Is that accurate? Tell us a little um, bit about how you work with your older writers. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting work. So again, we think of it like a collaborative ethnography. And essentially, I, I go back to the to the track book because that was the, the book for which I was the editor and um, did most of the interviews. But we have four or five other community book project books that are that have been conducted in similar ways. We sit down with folks and conduct oral histories or really just record our conversations with people with whom we're becoming friends. And there's no rush or real hurry, we hope, as we seek to establish communion and community with folks. So the idea is that you just establish a, an environment in which people feel comfortable talking about their lives, which is not always a, a super easy thing to do. And then you aggregate that material into a transcript and work with them to edit that material. And so in this process, they become the author. I mean, almost nobody in the track book did a lot of writing. A handful of the participants took the manuscript and retooled it a little bit, added here, added here and there. But in the process of editing, they are really taking the reins of the authorship and retooling these narratives into story that they want to share with the public. It's a really cool process, I think, for them. And it's just endlessly fascinating for me. And, and really, uh, I'm really grateful to be able to sort of shepherd these stories into print. I think of Studs Terkel all the time, who was a radio man and, and just a real mensch who cared so much about first voice narratives and honoring the dignity of the individual story. And so when you take a transcript of a conversation, like the one we're having now, there are multiple speakers. And what's really engaging for me as an editor is to take those transcripts and strip away, take myself out of the conversation entirely on the page until you just have this raw first person narrative and then start working with the author or the participant to sculpt that into a, a really compelling story. 
it's a really rigorous and it's a process that takes a long time, but it's really rewarding. So do you ever have trouble getting buy-in from some of the older uh, participants in your program about doing it to begin with? Or are they pretty excited to tell their stories? This is a great question. The answer is yes to both of those questions. (laughs) I've always found in the main, when you sit down with someone in a quiet environment and say to them, I'd like to hear about your life. I'd like to know how you got here. It's like they've been waiting their whole life for somebody to say those words. There's so much buy-in when a person is alerted to the idea that someone wants to hear their story. But getting to that point can be very, very difficult. And in the case of uh, Better Lucky Than Good, the backside of Churchill Downs is literally a, a cloistered environment. There's a wall around the place. It's really hard to get in. And racetrackers or folks who work and live on the racetrack are buttoned up pretty tight sometimes, especially when somebody comes around with a microphone and says, hey, uh, I'd like to talk to you about your life. You know, some dweeby guy with a microphone starts poking around. So it took a long time to crack the code and become ingratiated into that community. But once I did, and once I became a sort of fly on the wall, people were really eager to participate. And I heard some of the best stories I've ever heard in my life. So it's all about being very patient and letting folks know over and over again that I'm genuinely interested in their lives and that they will be the authors of this book. I mean, still to this day on the backside, people are like, oh, you're the dude who wrote that book. Like, no, <laughs> you guys actually wrote the book. It wasn't me. Yeah, so it can be really hard. But I think when the participants really kind of get hip to the idea that what we're trying to do is give them an opportunity to, to say their piece in their own words and folks tend to get on board. Uh, it's fantastic work, and I'm, I'm really grateful to be able to do it. You know, just hearing you talk about this, it makes me feel a little anxious. Like, <laughs> I, I'm sort of putting myself in your shoes and thinking right. about like, the responsibility. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm a freelance writer. I'm taking this topic, and, you know, I've got my lens. Is that a challenge? You have to sort of get yourself out of the way. Yes. Yeah. I have found it challenging. And like you say, there is a great deal of responsibility when you are shepherding people's lives into print for public consumption. Mm -hmm. And as you say, we have different perspectives and genres and approaches to the broad idea of nonfiction, journalism being one. I mean, if I'm on the courthouse steps and I say, Mr. Mayor, what about the passing this piece of legislation or something? I'm taking someone's words and putting them into print for very utilitarian purposes. On the other hand, to conduct an interview with somebody in which they're telling you all kinds of stories and they become comfortable with you, there's a, a level of friendship and trust that becomes a it's sacrosanct, you know. We have to keep that in mind in the editing process. And so going back over and over again with a draft and putting it in somebody's hands and saying, read this. Is this what you meant? Is this what you want to say to the world? It's just a part of the program and and one that's really different from a lot of other sort of publishing endeavors and uh, the ways that interviews frequently are used. So yeah, it's definitely keeps you up sometimes at night because both in workshops and in interviews, people get very real and they, they talk about things that are deep and really personal. And in some cases, for instance, when working with young folks, 
we have to convince them that what they have written or the ways they're approaching something should probably be left out of a publicly consumed story, you know? We have to sometimes redirect the energies and narratives that some of the young authors write in order to protect them down the line. Because the other part of our work is that we just do not engage in expose of any kind. And so our main objective is to facilitate and build community and understanding and communion between neighbors. So if somebody has a story that it could be interruptive to their relationships down the line, then we then we really try to work with them to figure out if that's what they want to publish. So what happens after publication of the book? You get the stories together, it, it goes to print, and it's done. What does that yeah. look like? When the book comes out, you know, it's actually a little bittersweet because our last book, we were not able to have a book launch mm. like we always hope to. But a book launch day is the best day in the LSP year. The book launch celebrations are the absolute summary of all of our hopes and mission at LSB. We routinely get four to 500 people from the community to show up to our book launch events to celebrate the work that the authors have done. And the feeling in the room of communion and interest in the work is absolutely stunning. It's the best. When you get authors who you've been working with for two years, one draft after another, constantly saying like, look, I know this is hard, but it's really worth it. And you're doing work for yourself and for your community and people truly want to hear from you. And you get those authors in front of a crowd of four or 500 people, they're just in thrall. It's just beautiful. I mean, it's fantastic. So the book launch celebration, it's this tangible terminus of, of the whole process. So our last book, Fights We Fought, have brought us here, which was written by authors from Central High School. Uh, of course, we weren't able to have a an in-person book launch. We did it online and managed to make an event that I think was really touching and, and important to the authors. Um, you know, we have these big events and then we start selling books and we beat the drum and try to drum up a lot of interest in the community and, out, and outside of the community for these stories, which are so important to our understanding of our our own community here in Louisville, but of course, you know the types of narratives that are being produced by these participants uh, resonate and are important anywhere where people feel like they ought to be listening to each other. Are y'all uh, starting some new programs, different kinds of programs? To do the types of books that we do takes forever and is extraordinarily expensive, and there are a lot more stories in the Naked City, as it were then we're able to get to and devote time towards a, a really slick finished book. So we're trying to figure out ways to be in touch with more people in the community. Like I say, we're always going to publish books. That's sort of our coin and trade, but we're also trying to figure out how else we can engage the, the community with a little more adaptability, I should say. So we're thinking about doing some some writing workshops that don't necessarily terminate in big publications, but instead uh, permit us to, to provide the benefits of the writing process to more folks and also do a lot to sort of kickstart that all-important sense of community and trust with folks in, in the city so that 
later on after maybe a eight week workshop. Some people have a great time and have written some things that they are really excited about. And they say, I'd like to keep working on this. What's the next step? We're also doing a lot more audio these days and we're, we're hoping to do a more broadcast, feeling my way around some audio editing software and trying to put together podcast-like broadcasts that we can share with the public. There's so much that, that comes across in spoken word and in, in conversations that we hear with our ears instead of with our eyes that, that can't be described in a book. So we did a really great program with some students at Iroquois High School. We partnered with WFPL, the, the NPR affiliate here in town, to create what were called the Iroquois Stories, um, which are still available online, in which we did a audio first-person narratives that were just fantastic. That was that was a cool project. I heard those. They were amazing. Oh, I thank really you so much. I really enjoyed those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great project, and those students were, were just fantastic. All right. Well, Joe, thank you so much for telling us about Louisville Story Program. Where can people learn more about it? Yep, it's an easy one. It's louisvillestoryprogram.org. You can read about all of our projects and watch the the project videos, and you can buy our books there. You can also buy the books at Carmichael's Booksellers uh, here in Louisville and elsewhere online. Uh, Those two places are the best places to buy the books. Awesome. All right, well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Joe Manning and with Carrie. And Carrie, I want to know what you're reading. So I decided to reread a book that I read probably 25 years ago that stuck in my head. And I lent it to somebody and they never gave it back. So I wanted to reread it again. It's called The White Hotel by D.M. Thomas. How did it come on your radar all of a sudden? Did the person finally return the book or what? No. No, it's like this book, it was one of those reads that it just is a jarring read. And it stuck in my head as being really powerful. But it's a confusing book. Like there's a lot of weird stuff going on in this book. If you're the type of person who you like a very chronological story and you like for everything to make sense, this is not the book for you. I think there's like four sections. The first section of the book is poetry and it's very erotic and it tells a story about this woman and she meets a soldier on a train and they stay at this white hotel. And then the next section of the book is telling the story about Sigmund Freud and he has a female patient, you know, he thinks she's kind of hysterical. And so he's trying to figure out what the deal is with her. And then the third section is more like the normal, I'm putting that in air quotes, normal narrative. And then the last part is almost like a dreamscape. It's just a bizarre read. And here's the thing, I should say this, it's about the Holocaust, right? Uh So it's just one of those really powerful books. And what I've decided is that it's one of those books that no matter how many times you read it, you're always going to think, I definitely didn't get everything. In a lot of ways, it's very mind-bending. But like I said, if you're the type of person who just wants a straight narrative and a lot of deep symbolism isn't your jam, 
this is probably not the book for you. But if you're interested in the Holocaust, you like experimental, poetic type writing, and you don't mind at the end being confused, (laughs) but also like really powerfully impacted by the story because you cannot read like the last two sections of the story. They're just devastating. When was this written? 1981. Okay. I don't want to talk too much about it because, like I said, it's super hard to explain. This was way more coherent than I even thought I was going to be able to do. So, The White Hotel by D.M. Thomas. How did it compare to when you read it the first time you read it? Obviously, it made a big impression on you. Yeah. So, the first time I gave it five stars, and this time I gave it four stars. I think the reason I reduced the stars on it is not because of the book. It's because of the... 20-something-year-old who read it and thought she got it. So I would kind of kept this idea in my head for 25 years about what this book was about. And then I reread it now. And I guess the thing is, you know how you get older and you realize that you don't know anything (laughs) compared to when you're in your 20s and you think you know everything? And so I think I was more like, I'm confused. And I don't like being confused. Definitely four to five stars. But again, it's going to be based on, you know, somebody who doesn't love this type of book in general and doesn't like symbolism and is probably going to rate it a one. But the stars were mostly a commentary on the 20-something-year-old who read it the first time. (laughs) So, Joe, what have you been reading? Just I'm getting ready to finish a book called My Meteorite by a fellow named Harry Dodge who is a video artist and a sort of conceptual visual artist out of Los Angeles, I think. And a first-time author. I actually only picked up this book because uh, Harry Dodge is married to an author whom I admire very much named Maggie Nelson. Maggie Nelson writes what we think of as creative nonfiction. Did she Um, write Bluets? She did. Okay. Yes. Okay. And I adore Bluets. It was really blew my mind up when I read it a few years back. It's such a strange and powerful and unsettling book. So I picked it up on a lark and I'm about done with it. And it is nonfiction. It's what what we talk about as being a sort of fractured narrative, a fractured approach to nonfiction. There are these bursts of writing that issue forth from different periods in time uh, it is definitely non-linear. It was. It's really it relies on non-linearity to, to to create a type of sense. And what Harry Dodge is dealing with, there's several sort of themes that orbit one another in these fractured narratives. Uh, he's talking about growing up in an adoptive family and the adoptive father coming down with dementia and the end of his life. He's talking about meeting his birth family. He's talking about his sexuality and creativity. And there are a lot of themes that are interspersed about literary criticism and philosophy and so on. So he's also talking about artificial intelligence a lot and also human cognition and how we think about our thoughts. So there's, it's really rather a lot going on, but it's, it's been a great read, actually. And he pulls it off with a f- style that is uncommon, I think, and, and really fresh. So... I've really enjoyed it. It is, as you said, not for the faint of heart and not for those who are seeking the sort of linear storytelling sense. But it's a cool book. There have been parts of it that I've found really illuminating, especially when he talks about how we engage with the internet and 
how that affects us both as individuals, as a society, which is something I've been sort of thinking about a lot and trying to grapple with. It's very interesting. Book. Yeah, sounds like it. And and you yeah, put cool. in such, you know, I'm like nonlinear fractured. I could have used intelligent <laughs> words like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, well, Amy, what have you had going on over there? Well, I just finished a book. It's nonfiction. It's called Cork Dork, a wine-fueled adventure. <laughs> you among... are a cork dork. <laughs> hey, I'm not even finished with the title yet. This is a very long title. You need to pipe down, Carrie. Okay, I will. Cork Dork, a wine-fueled adventure among the obsessive sommeliers, big bottle hunters, and rogue scientists who taught me to live for taste. The author is Bianca Bosker, and this was published in 2017. So a cork dork is a slang term for a sommelier or a wine steward, a trained wine professional that usually works in higher-end restaurants or bars to help the customer choose a wine, or as they would maybe say, be a tour guide through their adventure of the wine life. The author, Bianca Bosker, was the former executive tech director for Huffington Post. And one day she wondered how wine fanatics could find so much more in their wines than she could in hers. What was the big deal about wine? How could they tell the vintage, the area of origin, the type of grape used in a wine by just smelling it or sipping it? So she decided to see if she could go from being a simple occasional wine drinker to a certified sommelier in the course of a year. She basically quit her job to research booze. So one critic described this book as the kitchen confidential of the wine world. And Bosker does a deep dive by immersing herself in the world of wine culture. And it's very gonzo journalism. So she talks her way into some very high-end New York City restaurants and working there. So the first one that she works at, she works in their wine cellar as a lowly person that they called the cellar rat. And she's basically organizing the bottles, stocking the bottles, bringing them up and down from the cellars. But then she also talks with scientists about how to improve your olfactory abilities to be able to smell at a higher level. And she goes to wine producer conventions to see what kind of products wine producers can use to improve their product. And she spends time memorizing and training to take the certification test to become a sommelier. So by exploring this topic, she asked some questions that were very interesting to me, which are, how do you tell a good quality wine? And there's that old adage, I know what I like, and that isn't totally off base. In fact, some wine producers in California now have started doing focus groups to find out what customers want and then create a wine that is mass produced to fill that desire. But other wine producers are horrified by this. Their philosophy is more that wine is a work of art. And the point is not to give the public what they want necessarily. So there's the question of, has what wines are deemed worthy just been the preferences passed down from the wealthy? And does making wine pretentious, is that really good for the wine industry? So she questions so many of these assumptions that are in the wine world, including telling people what they should drink. And it reminds me a little bit of literature, right? We all know we should read the classics. So sometimes what you really want is a mass market paperback. So when this book came out, it received critical praise, but many sommeliers and wine professionals bristled against it, much like the book I referenced earlier, Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. They thought that it would turn people away from wine, but I personally love this book. I was interested in it because, you know, 
I have imbibed a lot of wine over the quarantine. <laughs> no judging, please. <laughs> and I've become more interested in trying to distinguish the different grapes and their qualities than just drinking the wines just to drink it. So the whole thing sort of interests me. And I'm fascinated about how the terroir or where the grapes are grown can have such a difference on the taste of the wine, how microclimates between the same vineyard produce a different product. And in a lot of ways, it is kind of like an art and how it can all be affected by just the type of glass you use by allowing more room for vapors to escape. Mm-hmm. What I love about this book is that she combines the sensual, such as the smell of a type of wine might bring to mind a memory when you drank it on the European vacation. I actually had this. My husband and I went to Greece for our 20th anniversary, and I thought that the wines we drank there were amazing. And I said, I can't believe you can't ever find Greek wine in America. And then we did find a bottle here and we tried it and it did not taste nearly as good, probably because I wasn't in Greece on vacation, right? <laughs> probably. <laughs> but then she combines the scientific. So all those aromas that we think that we smell in the wine are based on certain, those naturally occurring chemicals that the wines contain. Scientists actually did find that sommeliers have different parts of their brain light up when they drank wine as opposed to an average wine drinker. But I suspect that that could be the same for anyone who analyzes anything, analyzing literature or music or art. You're using your brain in a more complex way than you do just living a day-to-day life. So mm-hmm. this book was incredibly readable. It isn't super dense. And by inserting herself in the story, we meet all kinds of really interesting people and events that she goes to. And if you're a wine lover, you definitely should give this book a try. If you're a foodie, this book might also interest you because I saw a lot of overlap between the types of people who are interested in these subjects. This book was a New York Times critics pick, and it also was a Goodreads winner in the category of food and cookbooks in 2017. So I wasn't the only person who liked it, apparently. (laughs) Well, that sounds cool. I'm going to add it to my list. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take another short break. And when we come back, Joe is going to answer his top five. We are back with Joe Manning, and we're going to ask him his top five. So number one, you are a musician and a, and a performer in addition to your work as a writer. If you could have a jam session with any other performer, living or dead, who would be your top two and why? I thought about this long and hard, and I, I found it a very difficult question to answer. <laughs> there are too many folks. Well, just today I was just thinking about a guy named Alan Sparhawk, who's the guitar player for a band called Low. They're out of our Minnesota. The band Low has always been just a, a huge influence on me. They started out in their early career making this really, really pretty somber, moody, super minimalist music. But Sparhawk is a fantastic, weird guitar player and a pretty strange dude. So I thought it would be pretty cool to hang out with him. I mean, this is a great question. Living or dead? Hold on. Just give me a second. Um <laughs> I mean, I, w- I guess I would say David Bowie. Why not? I really miss him a lot. So some, some time to spend with David Bowie would be well met for sure. Yeah. Question number two. What is the top interviewing tip you give to students or anyone who wants to improve their interviewing skills? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have a whole suite of lessons around doing oral histories. So what's the top tip? Well, the number one tip is always... There is one golden question in interviews, one question that is better than all of the other questions you can ask, or at least it is more useful to you. It is super easy. It is, can you tell me a little bit more about that? (laughs) 
Yes. That's a great thing. It's, I think also any open-ended question too, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So we do a lot of practice around open-ended questions and beyond that, um, which is really just a great tip, trying to con- demonstrate and elicit from the participants a real sense of curiosity and interest in hearing from other folks, because that's what's going to do it, in, especially in, in oral histories, family or with members of the community who maybe are have been hesitant uh, to sit down for an interview. If you can demonstrate with your body language and with your questions that you're genuinely and earnestly interested in their lives and experiences, that's going to be the number one technique to get a great interview. Okay. Well, question number three, (laughs) you wrote about your experience as a merchant freighter in your book of essays titled Certain Relevant Passages, which was published in 2017. Is there a top story that you wind up telling people the most about that experience? Yeah, that was a wild trip. I think I was 20 years old and I got on this cargo freighter. We probably went about three-fifths of the way around the globe over the course of six months, but one of our ports of call was uh, in North Korea, communist North Korea of all places. Yeah, so that in and of itself was pretty remarkable. But we had sort of a gigantic misadventure in North Korea, and the long and short of it is that I think we were at sea for 30 days. When we left Lake Charles, Louisiana, went through... Panama Canal and went across the Pacific to North Korea. And when we got to the port in North Korea, not surprisingly, there were just a very strict guidelines about what we could do off of the ship and where we could go. And essentially, we were allowed to go to this one restaurant slash bar that was inside of the port. And so in mass, all of the guys on the ship went to this bar and it devolved rapidly everyone became extraordinarily drunk. And one of the guys, a guy named Jack, he was a a sailor sort of step above me, old guy. I saw Jack somehow, he bought an entire bottle of scotch off the guy at the bar and then just left. Jack was headed back to the ship and walked up the gangway of what he thought was the motor vessel Noble Star, which was our ship. But what was in fact a North Korean naval vessel? Oh my gosh! Yeah, and so Jack was interrupted in this endeavor and by an armed military guy, and ended up having a scuffle with the guy and got thrown in North Korean jail. And by a process that is still a little bit opaque to me, was managed to get back on our ship a couple of days later, which is really great. We were glad to have him back, but it was a enormous misadventure and not something that I'll soon forget, as you can imagine. Did it feel kind of tense there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that situation was tense. I don't know. You don't see very many pictures of North Korea, but when you do, everything no. seems very regimented and fair. It was really a strange place. And, and yes, there was clearly a tension. So I was working for a shipping agency, but the contracts that we were taking on were for USAID. We were hauling foreign food aid. Mm. And so we were delivering however many thousands of tons of rice and vegetable oil to the people of North Korea, each of which had a gigantic American flag stenciled onto the top of it. So for the government and the citizens of North Korea to be taking anything from um, the, the United States would have been the source of some distress and disgruntlement, I would think. 
And even our dealings with the guys who worked on board were tense. A lot of weird stuff happened on that trip, and, and in that port in particular. It was pretty unsettling. It was really wild, actually. So it's I all in imagine. the book. <laughs> I, I want to read your book. You've got some great stories. So question number Thanks. four, yeah. you have called yourself a lifer. So, and that's someone from Louisville who's lived elsewhere but has returned to their hometown. What is one of the top qualities about Louisville that always makes you want to come back? I appreciate the ways that Louisville, I mean, this is a, this is a pretty big city. I mean, essentially, we have a million people living in the metro area. That's a lot of people, but it never feels that way. It never feels like an, a gigantic city to me. It feels like the biggest small town in America. I feel really comfortable here. I, it's just, a, I think, all in all, a, a pretty easy place to live. And, and I feel like folks treat each other with respect and dignity. We have good neighbors here, yeah, I'll say. Yeah. You know, not to mention the Olmstead Parks system, which I think is really the unsung hero of of the history of, of Louisville, Kentucky. It's just, we're really fortunate to live in, in a city that was Olmstead's last major um, park system project. Mm-hmm. Last question. So over the pandemic, mm-hmm. you taught yourself piano. So what is the yeah, top? I wouldn't say that necessarily, <laughs> but I have been tinkering. Tinkering. Yeah. Okay. You've, you've tinkered with teaching yourself piano. So what's the mm-hmm. top method that you use to teach yourself a new instrument? Is it like starting from scratch or because you already play other instruments? It's like adding to your yeah. already existing skill. Now, this is a super cool question. I, you know, like I said earlier, I've been thinking about human cognition a lot and how our brains work. And music is it, just beguiling to me. I, I, I cannot make sense of it at the sort of meta level, if you will. It's such a bizarre thing to do and to be able to do. I just never learned piano. It was just not part of my upbringing at all. We didn't have one around. And by the time I started making music with other people, it was that was covered, and it was not something I was ever doing. Guitar is a truly bizarre instrument, the way that it's set up, you know? And it was a revolutionary instrument. It was It's extremely portable, but the way that you play it is counterintuitive in some ways. <laughs> to play piano, it is mind-blowing how simple it is. Mm. Like, not to play, I shouldn't say that. But the way that it's laid out is perfectly sensible. It is totally (laughs) linear. And so to answer your question, it's been just so revelatory and cool to play piano and figure out how it works. Because as I'm doing it, there is a lot about just rudimentary musical theory that is falling into place. Like these big gaps are being filled. It's just a blast when I'm able to carve out some time to mess around with it. Um, I have a long way to go before I'm even close to proficient or could hold down a melody in a yeah. you know performance setting. But it's it's very fun. It, I don't know how you describe it, but it's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together that's like a map of a place right. you thought you knew the whole time, you know? Well, Joe, it has been really fun talking to you. And I sure, feel like yeah. I know so much more about the Louisville Story Project now. And it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks to you both. <laughs> okay. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. 
If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.